Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We continue this morning in a series in the Gospel of Luke that is going to probably take the better part of the next year. Uh, We've come to this passage uh, where his baptism is recorded. And this must be a significant event in Jesus' life and ministry for two reasons. The first being that it's recorded in all four Gospels. And the Gospels are so different that when an event or a parable is given room in all four of them, it must be there because there's particular significance attached to it. And I think that's the case. But the second reason is that the church, in creating the liturgical calendar, has historically paused on a yearly basis to meditate and consider this story because it's so important. So we will do that this morning. Now, one textual note as we kind of get revved up uh, in in what we want to see this morning. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' baptism, recorded here in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, is in every case attached to his temptation, which immediately comes after it here in chapter 4. Now, there's a theological reason for this. It's not merely chronological. Okay, but more about that in just a minute. But the theological impulse that we are really going to go after this morning, the doctrine, you might say, of what we want to look at and see and meditate on this morning is just this. And Jonathan stole my thunder. He said it a little while ago. He said it this way, and this is the way we're going to say it this morning. The teaching of this text, if I had to sum it up, bring it all together, would be this. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. Now, it is the new year. And we are wont around the turn of the new year to make all kinds of resolutions and plan self-improvement projects. 
And there's a problem with this. If you made New Year's resolutions, yours probably look somewhat like mine. And here they are. Actually, those aren't mine, but they could be mine. I tell people all the time, people will come to me and say, you know, how can I pray for you? I said, didn't you ask me that six months ago? Yeah, we'll just keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Obviously, it's not working, so keep trying, right? 2009, 2000, no, 2000, no, 2011, well, 2012, my favorite is stand up to boss, crossed out, find a new job. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, Maybe you're here because of a New Year's resolution. Let me say something at the very beginning. You can take that off, Rob. It's embarrassing. There we go. <laughs> let, me, let me say this to you at the very beginning. Christianity is not a technique for self-improvement. Did you hear that? Christianity is not a technique for self-improvement. We don't need to be improved. We need to be made new. And that made me think of a paragraph in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis said that mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. Listen to what he says. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. This was his illustration. I like this. He said, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, Rather, it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. See, God, God, um, God's goal for you is not a better you. It's to turn you into something completely different than what you are now. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. And so I just want to follow that. That's our outline this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, so you'll see in your outline two points. Jesus became like us. But then when I, I want to ask... Once we establish that, I want to ask why. Jesus became like us and why. And then the second point being so that we might become like him. But then I want to ask how. And that will be the substance of what we look at this morning as we consider that his goal for us in 2015 would not just be a better version of ourselves, that we could jump over fences that we couldn't previously jump over. He wants to turn us into something completely different and new. And ultimately, even on the other side of death, he will. So let's begin this morning and look right here. The first thing we learn from these two scenes, from his life, from his baptism in in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, and his temptation in chapter 4, verses 13, is that Jesus became like us. And why? Uh, This is the point Luke is trying hard to get across. Let me give you three reasons, straight from the text, uh, why why the the impetus of of what Luke is writing here is to show us how Jesus has become like us. Three reasons. First, Jesus' 40 days of testing in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry echoes and calls to mind Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and testing in the wilderness at the beginning of their journey into the promised land from Egypt after the Exodus. And that connection is intentional. In the Exodus story, when Israel came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, you remember, right? And the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 actually calls that a baptism, They were baptized into Moses and into the Red Sea, and then they went into the wilderness. And so here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it follows the same pattern. He is baptized, and then he goes out into the wilderness, just like Israel. So why? Why is this? What's going on? And Jesus is intentionally entering into the experience of his people. The theologians would say he is the new Israel. Second clue. 
in the text that proves the point I'm trying to make is that is the part that we didn't print, unfortunately, for you. So if you have a Bible, it'd be very, very helpful because in chapter 3, there's a genealogy. Matthew has a similar genealogy in his gospel also, uh, and he uses his genealogy to prove that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah king, but Luke has a very different purpose. If you notice, if you have a Bible in front of you, beginning in verse 23 and ending at the end of chapter 3, Luke has a very different purpose. He traces Jesus' lineage past David, even past Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Now why? He's making a theological point. Jesus has come as the second Adam. As the book of Hebrews puts it, in a couple of places, he had, of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And the passage that Jonathan read, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. He's the second Adam. He's the true Israel. He's the second Adam. And then the third thing is actually from the account of this baptism in Matthew's gospel, though Luke doesn't record it. When Jesus goes down into the water, John objects. He says, you don't need to be, you don't need to be baptized. You, know, you don't need me to do this for you. I need you to baptize me. And the reason John objects to baptizing Jesus is because we're told here in chapter 3, verse 3, that John's baptism which should not be, by the way, just for free, which should not be linked to Christian baptism. It's something completely different. John's baptism in verse 3 there is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John was baptizing people as a sign of their turning away from their sins and they're wholeheartedly committing themselves to God in preparation for the coming of the Messiah after him. The people went down into the water seeking forgiveness for their sins, but Jesus has no sin. He doesn't need to repent. And John has a supernatural intuition about this. And that's why he says, no, no, no. You, you baptize me. I'm not baptizing you. Jesus is coming to be baptized. And it sets up a bit of a theological quandary. And it's what has John so confused. If John's baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus has no sin. Then why has he come into the Jordan to be baptized? Why is he there? And the answer is that he came into the world to become like us. To become us, you might say. He is the new Israel. He's the second Adam. And the reason, the why, the reason Jesus submits to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is because our repentance isn't enough to make us right with God. Our obedience, no matter how thorough or sincere, it isn't enough. We, we need a stand-in. We need someone who will take our place and be obedient for us. See, Jesus didn't come into the world simply to die the death that we should have died. If we stop there, we cut the power of the gospel off. He didn't come merely to die the death that we should have died. He also came to live the life that we should have lived. And that's why he's there in the shallows of the Jordan with John, his cousin. He says in Matthew 3, let it be so now. Do this for me, John. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And there we have it. There's the why. Matthew Henry, who who has published a massive commentary on the whole Bible, famously prayed, I need to repent of my repentance. 
And he meant that our very best efforts at spiritual and moral form are still shot through with sinful motivations. Jesus became like us because we need a righteousness and we don't have it. And that word righteousness just means right. It means you're okay, you're right, you do what you're supposed to do. We need it, we've lost it, we're hungry for it. And the story I tell, there's so many of you that are new, you've maybe not heard the story. I remember when my daughter, Abby, who's now... I don't even know. I can't keep track of my kid's age. I just stop and think. We don't have time for that. She's nine or ten. Ten. I think we're on. Everybody goes odd, and then they go even. So I think we're ten. So when she was a very little girl, I put her to bed at night. And I remember one night I was putting her to bed. She couldn't be two or three years old. And, and of course, I, being um, the, the, the wonderful father that I am, my goal is to get her to bed as fast as I possibly can because I'm sure something was on the television or whatever that I want. Important stuff I needed to get to. Get through with this as fast as I possibly can. And so I'm putting her to bed, and I say, oh, Abby, you know I love you so much. Daddy, why do you love me? I'm thinking, oh, boy, okay. Sweetheart, there's just so many reasons. I couldn't possibly begin to explain to you all the reasons, thinking that's, that's the answer that's just going to get me through it, and I can get on. And her face, this is her face in that moment. I'll never forget it. Daddy, you've got to tell me all of them. I need to know all of them. <laughs> And I thought, dang it, (laughs) now what do I do? And I remember, I remember in the moment what a picture of my own heart it was. Of how desperately every single one of us needs to know we're okay. We need to know we're right. We need to know somebody thinks we're beautiful. We need to know. We need to know. And we don't. We need a righteousness and we don't have it. We're hungry for it and we're so hungry for it, that at the same time, and we're at the same time so far from it, we're so twisted and disfigured in our sin that even our penitential tears need to be washed. It's as if God's holiness and the requirements of the law demand that we would run a marathon when in reality we can't run a hundred yard dash without getting out of breath. Sin has corrupted every part of our being, and this is why all of the sermon series out there, not to knock other churches, but just be careful. All those series, four steps to getting unstuck in your spiritual life, they don't work because they appeal to your will, and that's the problem to begin with. They don't work because the solution to our sin problem is not to try harder. The solution to our sin problem is a stand-in. And Jesus became like us because we need a mediator. We need someone to do it for us. And the Hebrews writer says that he has become like us in every respect. That he took upon himself our frail humanity so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. And a priest is that. A priest is a mediator. A priest is a stand-in, a representative. The priest stood in the temple and represented the people before God. He stood in the temple as the people. And Jesus came to live as us. He was tempted in every respect as we are. Does that blow your mind? He was tempted to lust. He was tempted to dishonor his parents. He was tempted to become full of self-pity. He was tempted to be anxious. That's why he can look at you and have compassion on you in your struggle against sin. He's not unsympathetic. Isn't that what Hebrews says? He's compassionate towards us in our struggles. And the word is sim. Pathos, which literally means to suffer with. So if you've walked with a loved one in their battle with cancer, 
then you're, you're the greatest friend to somebody else who's going through the same struggle because you've shared the same kind of suffering. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom with a bunch of preschoolers running around your house driving you absolutely insane, you probably find it easy to sympathize with other mothers in the same boat. Right? You share a similar suffering. So it's easy for you to step in and help because you don't even have to think about what to do. You know what help they need because you've been there. Do you see how wonderful this is? Jesus has, been, has faced temptation to a greater degree than any person in this room because he never gave in. He shared that suffering with us and therefore the reflex response of his heart towards you, towards me, in our sin and weakness is compassion. Not anger, not judgment, not impatience, not condemnation. He's not frustrated with you. He's not disgusted with you. He's not disappointed in you. He's full of compassion because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's what it meant. That's what he meant when he said to John, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to become like us, to be tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin, so that he might win the battle against sin and Satan for us. And that's what we see him doing here in this text. The catechism of our church teaches us that when Adam, tempted by Satan in the garden, sinned, he did not act for himself alone, but represented the whole human race. And because of Adam's sin, we all fell into a state of condemnation and guilt before God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that when Jesus, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, was obedient to the Father's will, when his whole life long, with every breath, he remained true to God, he did not act for himself alone, but he represented all those for whom the Father had given to him. God treated Jesus as if he were us, so that now he can treat us as if we were him. The righteousness we need is not something that we work out and then give to God as our gift to him. It is something that he does for us in Jesus, and then he gives it to us as a gift. And that's the reason for his baptism and his 40 days of temptation. See, there's an irony here. There's an irony, okay? And the irony is just this, that it's only when you stop trying to be righteous that you find righteousness. Or if you want to turn it around, it's only when you know that righteousness is by faith that you become a person who begins to practice righteousness. And that's the second thing we learn from these two scenes in Jesus' life, in his baptism and in his temptation, is that Jesus became like us so that we might become like him in his obedience, and then how. Okay, so let's look in a little more detail now as we come to this text and kind of pick apart some of the particulars. What you see there in verses 32 of chapter, or excuse me, 22 of chapter 3, and then beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, the reason I really think the... the the, uh, the desire of this passage for us is our obedience is because the Spirit is there. In chapter 3, verse 22, the Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. And Matthew's gospel says it rests on him. And then in chapter, four, chapter, one, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. So the Spirit is here and present and active in Jesus' life. And just as the Spirit here falls upon Jesus, so we know in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit has fallen upon the church. And the work of the Spirit in the life of the church, that means in your life and mine, we're told by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ with ever-increasing glory. 
So where the Spirit is active and working, there's a, there's a result of that work, and it is that you and I begin to be like Him. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. And if I could go ahead and quote C.S. Lewis one more time. He believed that a lot of our confusion with how God deals with us in our walk with Him has to do with what we imagine Him to be making us into. He said, borrowing actually from George MacDonald, he said, we naively assume that he intends only to make us, you know, whatever he's doing in our life, it's like to make us this nice little cottage. Uh, But when in fact what he's doing is building a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. Here, Here are Lewis's words in Mere Christianity that I like so much. He says, the command to be perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey. Listen to his words. If we will let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to him perfectly, though on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's God's intention. It may not happen, it doesn't happen on this side of death, but even death, Lewis goes on to write, is part of the process of him, of him turning us into this kind of person. And we see this particularly in the part about Jesus' temptations here in chapter 4. So look there in great detail. There are three, he's tempted, there are three temptations that Satan brings uh, to him. And they're out of order from Matthew's gospel, which is significant for theological and thematic reasons. But let's deal with them like this. Let's look at the second temptation first. Because it really is the one kind of that, that, that the other two are rooted in. Satan, we're see here in chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Satan offers all the power and the glory of the kingdoms of the world to Jesus as if, if he will only bow down and worship him. If he will defect from God and turn away from him. Now remember, Luther said that we break the Ten Commandments because we've already broken the first. To have no other God before the Lord. And this is what Satan wants Jesus to do. To renounce his sonship, and look for happiness and life and meaning in something other than God, some other God. And do you see what Jesus' response is there? Verse 8, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's interesting, this is not the last time that Jesus would be tempted to do this. Peter, his friend and disciple, imagined power and glory for him too, definitely not a cross. And Do you remember what his rebuke was? was to him, get behind me, Satan, he said on the road. All throughout his life and ministry, all the way up to his final hours, as he wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was was tempted to abort the mission, to say yes to power and glory like it's offered to him here, and no to the cross, but he remained resolute. Not my will, but yours be done. And that's the spring from which all the rest of his obedience and ours flows. You see at the bottom, sin is saying yes to living for myself and no to living for God. And so obedience means saying yes to him and whatever he has for my life and saying no to myself and putting him at the center. Your kingdom come, right, is what we're to pray. Your kingdom come, not mine, by implication. Your will be done, not mine. And yet we look at this temptation first because it's the root of all temptation. It's the, it's the hidden agenda. I can control my life. I can be at the center of my universe. And that's the allure of all the idols that we give our hearts to. If you remember the story in Exodus chapter 32 of the people making and fashioning this golden calf that they bowed down and worship, the reason they did it is because Moses was up on the mountain. He was taking too long. They were impatient. They got frustrated. 
And so they made an idol that would serve their, their will. They wanted a God that would follow their rules. They wanted a God that they could manipulate and control. And that's the allure. That's the allure. This is what we all want. We want a God who makes sure that I never have to wait, that I never have to go without, that I always have what I want and right now. God will serve me, my will, my schedule, my agenda, my dreams, and so forth. And this is what Satan is coming hard after Jesus about. And we see there's really, once you see that the issue, the way Satan comes after you is to get your will engaged, you begin to see in these other two temptations the way he does it. The first is, the the first temptation here is the temptation to self-reliance. And this is my will activated horizontally. Right? My will activated horizontally with the people and the things in my life. And so Satan comes to him up at the beginning of chapter 4, and he says, you're hungry. So turn a stone into a loaf of bread. Now here's the implication. Jesus, God has not done a good job of taking care of you. You need to take care of yourself. Poor you, the Jesus story of the Bible would say. Don't trust God. Do it for yourself. Satan wants him to act independently from God, to launch out on his own instead of waiting and trusting his father to meet all of his physical needs. And it's so subtle. Put your will to work. That's the temptation. You've got to make this happen. You, you've got, nobody else is going to, you've got to make this happen. And yet listen to him. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. Verse three, Jesus responds to this temptation from the enemy. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, it's one of my favorite verses in the Gospels in John chapter 4 where Jesus is again hungry. And his disciples are urging him to eat food. And in this kind of cryptic way that he has, he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. For my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, what fuels my life is not bread. What fuels my life is obedience to my father. It's like bread. He says later on in John's gospel, I do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my father doing. And that's the heartbeat of obedience. I do nothing on my own. I don't push the people in my life around. I don't make it happen for myself. I wait on my father because I know at the end of the day, he will take care of me. See, there's a temptation for your will to activate horizontally. It's interesting in the last temptation here, it's a temptation for your will to activate vertically. It's a temptation to presumption. To presume upon God or to put him to the test, right? That's what Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It means to try to force God's hand. An example might be, uh, in, 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 in some corners this is looked on as, as something like super spiritual. You quit your job and you say, I'm stepping out by faith. Okay, God, I've quit my job. I'm walking in faith here. You have to come through for me now. And the Bible would say, no, that's not faith. That's presumption because God might say to you, you know that job you just quit? That was me coming through for you. Right, but this, 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 you know, it's a hidden, it's this, this idea of I can, I can do certain things and in doing certain things that God has told me to do, I can, get, I can be obedient to him and then he's got to come through for me. It's a temptation to try to hedge God in. It's a temptation to make decisions independently of him and then expect him to be there to bail you out. And look how Jesus responds Satan says, throw yourself off the temple. God will rescue you. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He doesn't activate his will horizontally. 
He doesn't activate his will vertically, and that's the essence of his obedience. His complete trust in the Father. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him, that we might follow him in his obedience. But the last thing we've got to do, and then we're done, is just ask the question, how? How is it? How, did you, how do we become like him in his obedience? And there really is a parallel between Satan coming to Jesus in the wilderness here in Luke 4 and his coming to Adam and Eve in the garden of, in, in Genesis chapter 3. He uses the same strategy. Do you remember Genesis 3? What's his strategy there? Let me, let me boil it down for you. In Genesis 3, Satan produces a lie that leads to unbelief that causes Adam and Eve to act on their own apart from God. The Bible talks about the schemes of the devil, or I like the old translation, the crafty wiles of Satan. We don't talk that way anymore. The crafty wiles of Satan. And this is it. A lie that leads to unbelief, that causes you to act upon your own apart from God. That's the strategy every time, and here it is in Luke 4. Look at verse 3, look at verse 9. If Susan caught it, Susan always catches it. But in her reading, she caught it, if you heard it. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. There's an old hymn by Joseph Hart, which is a meditation on this text, in which he says, If thou art the Son of God, oh, what an if was there. These stones here speak them into food and make that sonship clear. Oh, what an if it was when Satan said to him, if you are the son of God. Do you see his strategy? It was to get Jesus to doubt his sonship so that he would act upon his own apart from God. And that is the root of every sin. It's where he gets us every time. He creates, he creates a lie that produces doubt and unbelief. Does God really love me? Can I trust him? And if I'm not sure, see, if I'm not sure, guess what my next step is? I put my will to work. If I don't know he's going to go to work for me, then I've got to work for myself. And I either put my will to work horizontally with the people and the things in my life, try to get life done on my own, or I go to work and try to do something that hedges him in so that he's got to do for me what I think he needs to do. So if I don't know, does God really love me? Can I trust him? If I don't know, if I'm not sure, then I put my will to work, and that is the source of all of our trouble. And that's when... See, that's when uh, I, it's even little things. It's when I, it's in that moment, that's when I text my friend uh, and the text has just a little too much bite in it. It's when I correct my children, but it's not just correction. It's, it, you can feel my anger and my will rising up in my correction of them because it's, there's unbelief back here. And so the how, the how for both Jesus and us is what happens to Jesus then back in chapter three at his baptism. If the struggle is the lie that produces this unbelief, if you are the son of God, then the thing that happens back in the baptism is the thing that's the key to the, to the whole deal. And there are three things Luke mentions. He says that the heavens opened and a voice spoke and the spirit came. There was a divine revelation. The heavens opened and a divine endorsement. The voice spoke. And when the voice spoke, the spirit came down, a divine empowerment. And so we need all three of those things. We need a revelation of God's love for us and his endorsement of us that brings spiritual power into our lives to overcome sin. That's what happened for Jesus at his baptism. It's what can happen for every single one of us in the room this morning. So let's just finish with that. You see the phrase up in chapter 3, verse 21, the heavens open? It refers to a revelation, an unveiling, God making something known that was previously hidden. 
Now, this is very difficult and, and maybe even dangerous. So before you report me to the authorities, come and talk to me about this, please. Okay, don't you love it when a pastor starts something like that? That's like nuclear. That's like, perk up. If you were sleeping, you're awake now. Okay. Um, at the end of chapter 2, see, I'm even bumbling as I can try to figure out how to come into this. But at the end of chapter 2, Luke includes a mysterious cryptic phrase that Jesus Verse 52, Jesus went home with his parents and he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. So just like his 12-year-old body continued to grow and fill out, the implication is so did his wisdom and his faith. That Jesus had a lot still to learn. And it's a curious thought, isn't it? That wisdom, hello, wisdom, increased in wisdom. Wisdom increased in wisdom. There's a similar phrase in the book of Hebrews that he learned obedience, that he was, quote unquote, perfected. He was made mature. That's what that word means. He came to maturity through suffering. And I mentioned this to say something happened at his baptism that was a new, see, that was a a fuller, a new revelation for Jesus. Maybe not that he didn't know it before, but that he didn't know it as deeply as he did until it happened. And the revelation was this. It was the voice from heaven. You are my son. Do you remember what the temptation was? What was the temptation? If you are the son. What came at the baptism? The voice came, you are my son. And here's the part, here's the part that might get me in trouble, but I think is a good exegesis. Jesus needed the voice. He needed to hear the voice and what it had to say. I mean, Matthew records the heavenly voice as saying, this is my son. It's interesting, it's different. This is my son. So it's a public declaration of Jesus's sonship for all to hear. But in Luke, look, in Luke, the voice says, you, he's speaking right to you. You are my beloved son with you. I'm well pleased. It's a personal address, not a public announcement. It's words meant for the crowds gathered at the river, but meant especially for Jesus because his heart needed to hear them. Jesus needed these words from the father. They were his fuel. For the next three years of his ministry, a divine endorsement on his life and calling. And so the energy for his obedience and for ours, but for his, came from an awareness and confidence in his father's delight and love for him. So he says in John 5, later in his ministry, he says to the crowds, I do not receive glory from you, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He says, I have the love of God within me. And so the difference between Jesus and the rest of us is that he had the love of God in him. He was so confident, he was so sure of the Father's love that he didn't need to receive glory from others. He didn't activate his will horizontally or, or vertically. And so here's the Father at the beginning of his ministry declaring his approval and his delight of his son. I love you, he says. I believe in you. You're the man for the job. You're gonna do great. Those are powerful words. To have somebody say things like that to you is powerful. And from this point on, I mean, if you look from this point on, and we didn't read it, but in the very next verse, in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. There's power, there's power in this. From this point on, there's a power about Jesus' life. The Spirit comes to rest upon him because of what he experienced there at his baptism. And if here's the thing, listen. If Jesus needed these words from the Father, then how badly do you and I need them too? 
If all of life is a testing of our sonship, if the essence of every single struggle with sin is, if you are the son of God, then we need to know. We too need to have the love of God in our hearts because it changes everything. I remember uh, when we were traveling, we were traveling doing baseball with my oldest son. And I think this is how ridiculous, this was all-stars. It wasn't a travel ball thing. So I think there were like seven or eight. So if you can imagine, we're into the whole crazy parent, you know, T-ball all-stars traveling all over the state, which is, which is what we did anyway. And uh, I remember we were losing really badly, and these kids, this group of kids, were really kind of prone to this, and they would really get down in the dumps, and everybody would kind of begin to be gloomy because we were losing. And, and I remember one kid in particular, was a very emotional kid on the team, and we, he was really important to the team. He played first base or something, and uh, so he was making a lot of mistakes, and you could just tell it was beginning to snowball. And I, he came over to the fence, and I'll never forget, his dad uh, met him there at the dugout, and I remember he said, Garrett, Garrett, look at me, son. I'm proud of you. And I watched that kid. He said, I'm proud of you. Now go get him. And that kid came up the next inning and he hit like a triple. I don't even know. You could just see, he kind of was walking to the dugout like this and his dad caught his, and he looked up at his dad and it was just like, right? His whole countenance changed. I mean, it was just like this whole transformation happened right in front of me because the fa- his father's voice came into his life. We need an experience like that. At the end of his life, hanging on a cross, Jesus needed to hear these words again. He was tired and lonely and afraid, and he reached out to his father. Father, why have you forsaken me? And there was nothing. There were no words. The father who is here so effusively declaring his love and delight in his son was silent. Jesus hung there, condemned in our place, and all the wrath of God against our sin came down upon him. And that was the reason for the silence. But hear me, because he was silent in that moment to the one he loved the most, you can hear his voice this morning. If you put your faith in him and are united to him by faith then these words here that the father sings over his son at his baptism are your words too, with no exception, no condition, no footnote of explanation. Can I just say them over you? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. Can I just ask, what would change in your life? What would that do? If you heard those words and really believed them, To be loved like that, what would it do? Well, it would take away any need to try to control your life and make sure you're taken care of. It would take away any will. There'd be no will horizontally, right? You wouldn't need to push people around to make sure you're taken care of. The opposite of self-reliance is serving others in humility and patience, but it would also take away any need to try to control your life and, and any anxiety or complaining. The opposite of presumption is joyful contentment in what the scriptures say and call waiting upon the Lord. That's the obedience that we're called to here. See, Jesus became like us so that in hearing the Father's voice, we might even today begin to become like him. That's our hope. So let's pray together this morning, can we? Father, would you do that in us? Would you come now as you did then by your Spirit? Would you pour out your spirit now upon us in these moments as we stand before you to sing? Would you open our ears, unplug them, unclog them from the noise of our culture that screams at us with every commercial and every advertisement and every 
article that we read and, and the constant drone of, of um, the constant drone on Facebook of human hubris and pride, would you unclog our ears that we might hear you today, hear your voice singing over us. I love you. I'm delighted in you. I'm pleased with you. And may it change. May it change our hearts. <laughs> may it change our lives. May it produce in us an obedience similar to what it produced in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might honor and glorify you. We thank you. We thank you that righteousness is not found in trying harder, but even as we understand that righteousness is a gift that you give to us, that the very thing it does in us is it begins to make us people who become righteous. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, do that work in us this morning, we pray. And we pray for your sake and in your name. Amen. Uh, Not knowing where Satan is coming after you, uh, not knowing what it is, uh, the struggle of your heart, where your heart is raw from trying to believe, trying not to give in to the voice that would say, if you are, if you are the son. Uh, hear the words of this benediction. They are the song that God sings over you of his great love for you. That is how you take, that is how, how you fight the battle. That's what you take into the battle with you is these words of the father, even in this benediction. So receive the benediction as the very food that your soul needs to go and to to live the life that he's called you to live. Uh, Receive these words. They are yet again the Father's declaration of his love for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.